Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, everyone. Good to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. How are you? Good. Everyone in the back, can you hear me? Yeah? Even through your mask, you can hear me? <laughs> uh, it's nice to see you. I've been part of the Commonwealth Club. I've had the, the pleasure of being part of the Commonwealth Club for the last couple of years. And uh, it's great to be just be back inside this beautiful facility. So if you're here, thank you so much for joining us in person. If you're not here joining us on YouTube or online, uh, we totally understand. And also, thank you for joining us. Um, tonight's conversation is really interesting to me because... If you came here thinking, okay, I just want to talk all baseball, uh, I'm sad to admit it's not going to be all baseball. And if you came here to think, I'm, it's, I want to talk all politics in San Francisco, it's going to be some baseball. So uh, Larry Bear is, is one of the most remarkable people in the Bay Area to me, uh, having grown up here, uh, being a journalist here in sports and in news, because um, he's so much more than the San Francisco Giants. I mean, he bleeds San Francisco. Uh, grew up here. We'll get into that. Uh, but really, he has his hands in everything as a leader here in terms of San Francisco real estate, the recovery of this great city uh, as we're experiencing this thing uh, through the pandemic. And oh, yeah, by the way, the Giants, who's a, who brought us a lot of torture in a good way uh, for the last several decades. Um, Larry is the CEO and president of the Giants. We can talk about an hour or two about his, uh, his resume and his CV, but uh, I'll keep it brief here. I think you know some of his credentials already. Um, he is not just the leader, one of the leaders of this franchise, but he's also in Major League Baseball, a very influential figure as well uh, through the decades having served uh, in various capacities, a board of directors um, on many Major League boards, I should say. He's also a member of the board of the directors of the Bay Area Council and of NBC Sports Bay Area. Last year, and this is interesting, Larry helped launch, um, he was named the co-chair of Advance SF. Uh, this is a coalition of San Francisco CEOs and business leaders committed to addressing the community needs as we come out of this pandemic. And there are challenges, obviously, as we know, but there are some successes that we'll ask Larry about. Uh, in terms of his day job, his actual day-to-day, he runs the Giants. Um, he has brought us a lot of success uh, in his leadership. The Giants have been to the World Series four times. Remember 02? That one kind of hurt. But then we had 2010, 2012, 2014, so three titles. Um, also, that jewel of a ballpark, the first privately financed ballpark in Major League Baseball. Before SBC Park was the original name, I believe, was built. Um, as you know, if you've been around the city or the Bay Area a long time, that was not the best of areas. And so now China Basin Mission Bay is totally changed. And oh yeah, also in the early 1990s, if it weren't for Larry and his group of investors, it would have been the Tampa Bay Giants. So let, let's keep that in mind. There's a lot more to baseball in his resume. Uh, a quick reminder, would love to hear your questions. I don't want to just be talking the whole time. So please, as Carla mentioned, write down some questions for you, uh, and I'll do, we'll do a little Q&A at the end. And if you're watching online at YouTube, there's a chat function, so send us your questions. So it's great to see everyone. Without further ado, let me sit down and bring in Larry Bear, the president and CEO of the San Francisco Giants. Larry, how are you? Hi, Raj. Hi, everyone. <laughs> great, great to be here. Uh, and uh, thanks for that generous introduction, Raj. I, I have a couple things. One is, like you, I have great affinity for the Commonwealth Club. And back maybe, oh, a thousand years ago, <laughs> 
I was on the board of directors of the Commonwealth Club back, I think, when I first started Giants uh, early on. And um, just love the mission, love the voices that the Commonwealth Club allows to uh, be heard you know, throughout the uh, throughout the radio network and throughout the lunches and receptions and, and all the great events they they put on so uh just thank you to the commonwealth club for all the all they do and thanks for everyone uh joining virtually and in person larry it's great to see you i think i speak for everyone on behalf of of of, of the groom here it's great to see you and online a uh, really quick question before we get going where do you keep those three rings are they in the bookshelf behind you or in a sock drawer? <laughs> they're they're a little locked up I, it was funny i was at a sport prince uh, uh last week and um one of the owners of the Washington Nationals was there, and he was wearing his ring, his uh, Nationals ring from was that twenty nineteen? Was it? Yeah, I'm trying to remember what year they won it. Seven nineteen, I think, eighteen nineteen. And um, but uh, he was a little, I, 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 wonderful guy, but he was a little lopsided because <laughs> hearing his ring. And he was like, I think he needed like chiropractic ser- services because his ring didn't get so big. So I'm content just having them, uh, having them uh, stored away. And it's been, it was such an amazing honor for uh, all of us in the community to, to see the accomplishments of those teams. Oh, let me ask you, uh, you've been at this for a long time. I don't want to date you here, but, but, but a few decades, we'll say. Do you still, are you, every game, are you at a high or a low, depending on the outcome? Or are you kind of a little more reserved, like, I've been through this, I, I kind of know what's going on. But how, what's the roller coaster ride like for you? You, you know, I mean, I think... You know, you take your lessons from the the people who are best at it, people like Buster Posey or Bruce Bochy uh, or Gabe Kapler, for that matter, where you can't get too high uh, when things go well or too, too low when they don't. But I do have to say on this particular night, what <laughs> what kind of timing is this, Raj? I mean, here you, is this did you have did you schedule this where the first time I think this is the first time we we've. Um, you know, been swept in LA in what thirty five years or something, and and uh, that's that's when I go on. So uh, <laughs> yeah, for those of you who don't know, the Giants are coming off a four game sweep in LA. Can we erase the last four days? You're, you're pretty good at this stuff. Yeah. Well, the, the the really good teams over the years, and this is I'm happy to say this is our thirtieth year of this ownership group. So Peter McGowan. And uh, and myself and, and those who assembled that group back in in 1992. Uh, this is this was this is our 30th season, and the one thing I, I never uh, I never become unemotional about games, you know. And I'm, I'm you know every game this weekend against the Dodgers, and we have a game tonight. Be watching when we're when we when we uh, conclude here and playing the Diamondbacks in Arizona. And every game, to me, I, I haven't lost the the you know, kind of the feeling I had when my dad used to take me to Candlestick to watch Willie Mays and Willie McCovey. You guys used um, to go on the bus, right? On their shell. You you went on the bus yeah, from your house yeah, to the, the ballpark, right? The right, right. The, the, the great great memory. Um, it was uh, it took the twenty eight Ballpark Express Muni Muni line out to uh, Candlestick and. As so many, so many people, most people drove actually in those days, but, um, but you know, maybe five or 10% took, took public transit. Now with a downtown ballpark, we're at about 50% are coming some way other than their own car. 
But I, I, what I was going to say is I, I just never have lost that, the love for um, watching the game, rooting for the Giants. Um, and what I really enjoy most is being at the ballpark and seeing the collective experience of, of fans and the communal experience. And, you know, you don't really appreciate it, Raj. We've talked about this before, you and I. I mean, you don't really appreciate it until you, you lose it. And I'll tell you probably, well, one of the low points of the 30 years for me was walking into the ballpark in 2020. And I'm not sure how much of this you did, right? Uh, as you were covering, you know, much more important matters like the, you know, the pandemic and the, and the community response, but walking into the ballpark in 2020 with no fans, that, yeah. that's, that is, that was, much worse than I thought it would be in the sense that, um, you know, it's it, that communal experience was taken from us. And um, it's, it's, I think it's a big part of our lives, whether it's at the town square, the grocery store, the coffee shop, the ballpark, Golden Gate Park, uh, being together with people. Could you briefly just remind us or maybe even inform many of us what happened in the early 90s of how close were we? I don't think I've asked you point blank. How close was this franchise to moving to Florida? Well, it was it was really close um, to the point where you had what you had was not a you know rumored deal or not a um, not a, you know, a, a speculative deal. But Raj, what we had was a signed purchase agreement to to trans San Francisco Giants, and I'll never forget. It was uh, one of our son's birthday dates, August seventh, nineteen ninety two. It was announced that a purchase agreement had been had been concluded between the Giants ownership and the uh, group in Tampa to transfer the franchise in nineteen in, in for the nineteen ninety three season. The only thing, and this wasn't part of the announcement, but the only way it could have been stopped was for the the owners of of baseball to vote it down. So it was pending Major League approval. But I think everybody assumed that Major League approval would be forthcoming. And we had a very courageous and um, and uh, uh, dedicated and loving community, loving civic group that formed eighteen part initial partners uh, came together and said, "We can't let this happen. We don't know how we're going to kind of solve the problem, which was Candlestick Park, because there have been four failed ballot measures up to that point." 87, 89, 1990, and 1992 to build ballpark with public money. They all lost, uh, all those measures lost, two in San Francisco, one in Santa Clara, and one in San Jose. So, so uh, but, but this group came together without a ballpark plan, but said, we're going to put our money in and um, acquire the team and figure it out. And Peter McGowan, uh, was the was the managing partner was a, was the person that led the group. He and I kind of 
made the, did the dialing for dollars um, and uh, to, to try to, you know, to uh, cobble together this group. And it was wonderful people that, you know, that, that some were baseball fans, some, some were just San Francisco and, and civic fans. Uh, and that group still exists today, which I'm very proud of. 30, 30 years later, uh, the group has actually increased to 35. I've got, you know, I have 35 partners in the Giants right now. And they're wonderful, civic-minded people, no less civic-minded than they were in 1992, but feeling really great about the fact that the Giants are no longer in jeopardy moving, um, shall we say, ever. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Uh, let's, let's go to the present day now. And by the way, actually, l- l- let me dovetail off that. Can that happen nowadays? Are there civic-minded San Franciscans enough to save a project, to save our streets, to save a franchise, whatever the case is, baseball or not, because the city has changed so much in terms of focus, safety, demographics, everything. Is that spirit still here in the city like it was in the early 90s? That's a really great question, Raj, because I think when the early 90s, I mean, to be if we're being honest with ourselves, we had some rock rib, you know, San Francisco companies that, were had been around for generations and generations, and they were they really you know invested their energies, time, resource, financial resources into San Francisco institutions. And you know maybe it was the symphony, maybe it was the opera, maybe it was sponsoring the Giants or Forty ers at the time, maybe it was um, you know parks, etc. And some of those institutions just aren't here anymore, and that's and that happens in life, right? So whether it was the Bank of America that was based here, or Crocker, the old Crocker Bank that was based here, Del Monte, I could rattle off a bunch of companies that maybe some of you've never heard of, but they were they were big San Francisco companies. So what do we have now? So now we have an economy that's largely driven by technology. That is not a bad thing. That, that, that's fine. That's where we are in the world. And in some ways, we're blessed because if you look at the, the, the largest, most, most prominent companies in the world, many of them are based in, in, here in our neighborhood, right, and in, in the greater Bay Area, whether it's Apple or Google or, or Facebook, Meta, or, um, you know, just go down the line of all the, all the, all the large tech companies that are moving the, the economy. But the issue is, do they have the same you know, connection to San Francisco or to our community, the community where they live? And a lot of them do. Um, I think of people like Mark Benioff at Salesforce, who has, um, it's funny, his mother uh, grew up across the street from where I grew up in, uh, in San Francisco out in the avenues. And Mark has a real soft spot for, for the city and everything San Francisco. And other tech leaders that are that are like that but i think we, it's our job as a san, working at a san francisco institution like the giants to um you know to bring people under that tent and it's maybe not as natural as it was 30 years ago because these companies have not been around for generations uh in serving san francisco employees haven't been in san francisco for generations so so we've got to inculcate that that loyalty to the city um, which it's just, it's a different world, but we accept it. And, and, uh, 
And, uh, th- th- you know, there's some great people uh, who, are, who are feeling, you know, very loyal to San Francisco now. And there's no time like now when we have to have to generate that. You talk about Mark Benioff, talk about yourself. These are community leaders that have been here, whether it's five years or 50 years. Um, how accurate, how insulted are you? How upset are you about not only the reputation now from a national level of San Francisco, but forget reputation. When you walk down the streets and you see a lot of the problems on our streets here. Um, what, what can be done? What are you trying to do about it? Yeah. So it's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a complex situation we have, but uh, I want to make a couple of points. One is that um, one of the great attractions to San Francisco uh, over the years has been um, it's a tolerant city. It's a progressive city. It's a welcoming city. It's a belonging city. And those principles and values that we've all had growing up here and we, we cherish, have cherished over the years. I think what's happened is that, you know, over the years, we've also now found that uh, that the issues with San Francisco are more pronounced in part because that has been the, the feeling is that we have to that that gets preserved um, no matter what. And you, you obviously have to have limits and have to have restrictions. And as the mayor, uh, our current mayor breed has said, you know, we have to have, um, we have to enforce discipline, uh, in the city to, to, uh, at some level. So I think that that, so part of what, we, what, you know, has happened here is that there hasn't been enough, perhaps, um, uh, you know, of boundaries created. Having said that, I um, love the, the fact that San Francisco is a tolerant and permissive city. So what, do we, so what do we do? What do we need to do? I think the first thing we need to do is, as a business person, is make sure that all, all businesses are leaning in in whatever way they can uh, to, to help on the social issues. And we've started a group called Advance SF, which... Uh, uh, a gentleman, Lloyd Dean, who's head of Dignity Health, and a number of folks who were involved in the committee on Dobbs um, are involved in it on the board of Advance SF. And what we're what we're trying to do is look for ways businesses can be involved, not for t- tax breaks and not to improve permitting zoning, which you know businesses obviously you know are are interested in, but to help on. Uh, issues like income inequality, issues like the street, the street scene, and how to improve um, our streets, the cleanliness, and the, and obviously the the homeless situation is is has got to be addressed. Affordable housing. The Giants are involved in a project called Mission Rock, which is forty percent affordable housing, the highest percentage uh, yet from any developer, and that and the affordable housing in Mission Rock. Um, which is about to to be completed. The the first residential building will be completed next year. Um, you know, is going to have in the first phase six hundred units of affordable housing. We've got to provide uh, homes for people here. I was just in Europe, and you know, it's a totally different situation there, where where um, municipal and 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 regional governments are able to put together uh, opportunities for people to to be housed. And there's it's a complicated issue. There's mental health issues and, and all, but 
but you've got to be able to at least have the units. And I think that, you know, one of the things we've got to do at Advanced SF is work hard to find ways to get to get more housing built. And I think we're, you know, there have been some good developments and and uh, the city leaders, I think, are are realizing that we've got to take away obstacles to getting to, for, for housing to be built. Yeah. And, you know, I live on the peninsula. A lot of my neighbors will say, you know, or East Bay and South Bay, people North Bay, people say, you know, it's not just the giants that get impacted, not just the warriors, but it's the restaurants. It's the delis. It's the it's the civic centers where people sometimes are a little hesitant. You know what? I got a park. My car is going to get broken into. There's a good chance of that. Or there's going to be someone I've run into the streets that's a little unsafe. Those are some real economic issues that every, or excuse me, many businesses are feeling in real time. Do you, do you understand yeah. that? Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. 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 And especially in the core downtown, Raj. I mean, we, if you, you know, in San Francisco is a tale of kind of two, two stories here. One is neighborhoods, um, many neighborhoods, not all neighborhoods, but many neighborhoods are thriving, right? So if whether you're in the... You know, the Castro, Noe Valley, Marina, Richmond, Sunset, there's neighborhoods that are thriving. There are also areas of the core downtown that are really hurting. And people know about the Tenderloin, but also the core central business district downtown where um, the people you're talking about, the small businesses depend on offices. You know, Mark Benioff Salesforce Tower uh, is not full. It's not half full. And it it's hurts the person who has the sandwich shop, the person that has the shoe repair, the person that is depending on, on computers for, you know, for, for their livelihood. So, so, we, so part of it's the pandemic, part of it's the return, part of it is the nature of work in San Francisco, right? Because we've, we're, we're, we have, we're, we're technology-led uh, from a uh, business and industry standpoint and technology is um you know companies are largely remote are, are doing more remote work than, than in-person work and so how do we adjust and one of the things advanced sf is looking at is you know maybe our downtown the core downtown moves to more of a live work model and more, there's a more of a more residential um opportunities offerings in the core downtown and that'll take some time to convert, but that has happened in many in many cities. There's also the mayor has launched a uh, program where for uh, six months, no questions asked, you can basically you know occupy a street f- front with you know uh, subsidized rent subsidized by the city just to get the activity going uh, because the street scene has got we've got to be able to have retailers and you know that can that can function and not. And not have rents absorb their entire uh, their entire business. I haven't I haven't heard that. That's really interesting. That's yeah. very interesting. Uh, can we talk a little baseball? Let's do it. <laughs> so I've got um, forty five questions here. Uh, they all say, uh, "Are the Giants going to sign Juan Soto, the uh, the stud out of the uh, Washington Nationals?" You, it's just us, Larry. You could tell us. <laughs> so you know that I, I know you know, and I've, I've in thirty my thirty years I've avoided this, and I don't plan on <laughs> don't plan on going down the, the the rat hole as much as I love the Commonwealth Club, and as much as I love our fans, and as much as I love you, Rod. I am not going to get fined for tampering. So I can we'll help pay I the fine. Yeah, 
<laughs> no, seriously, seriously. I mean, it's it's there's it's, you'll, you'll it's, it's I, an I exciting cannot... time for you guys. But, the, but really, the deeper question is: the Giants have always had a star, not just a Bay Area star, but a national star. And with all due respect, it, it's not happened right now, especially with Buster leaving. Is that something that's important to the franchise? Yeah, you know, people ask. People ask. Um, we've had in this run we've and since the ballpark's been open. This is the twenty. 22nd year of new ballpark. We still call it the new ballpark and it's already <laughs> two decades old. It's pretty amazing. Right. But, um, you know, we've had a couple of eight year periods of complete sellouts, right. From 2000 to 2007, the first eight years of the park. And then when we won the championships from 2010 through 2017, past the championship years, we had sellouts and people ask, you know, what does it take to, you know, to fill the ballpark and obviously in baseball, especially not, maybe not so much in the NFL, uh, but in baseball, uh, it's critical to, uh, you know, to, to have paid attendance, the home attendance, that's the, the driver that's well in excess of 50% of the, of the revenue you're going to take in. And I would say there are three components that we've, we've enjoyed in those sellout years or when we've been successful with fans at the, at the gate. And, you know, we're still every year we're very blessed because I think our low water mark putting aside the pandemic was, you know, 0.5, 2.6 million. So in the 3.3 million capacity ballpark, we've all always been pretty full, but the three components to your point are, um, you know, a winning team, the ballpark itself and the brand. And then, you know, uh, players that people come to see now, Points one and three can get can kind of get you know integrate right. So, like last year, I mean, we had stars that um, you know we had stars we and we won. So, how much of it was the stars? How much of it was that we won? So, somebody like Buster, let's say, um, I would say that to be successful, we don't have to have stars on the on the club um, in order to win, uh, but. And, and to be successful at the gate and with franchise, you don't have to have stars, but it helps. And so obviously people point to Barry Bonds. And it was sort of must-see. Uh, his at-bats were must-see, uh, whether on television or, or, or when you're there. So I would say that having a star or two is um, highly desirable, but two two points one is you can't mortgage the farm for the star because if you get to have a star but the team creators in a worse position and the second point is stars can be homegrown so buster as you remember was a giant's draft pick another incredibly popular giant a star lensica homegrown massive Bumgarner, homegrown so uh, you know, the, you you can also do it that way. It takes a little longer. Uh, Barry, of course, was a free agent signing. It was in our first year. It was our first move. So, so I would say it's highly desirable, but not at the expense of of, of team performance. What are conversations like with Farhan Zaidi, who's your operations, you know, your baseball guru, in addition to you? You sit in a room, and do you have these similar conversations of, okay, there's a Juan Soto out there, there's an Aaron Judge out there, there's Player X out there. What's the conversation into, like you just said, do we bring him in? Is, it, is, it worth, is he worth the money? 
So I, I think the, the way those conversations tend to go is, first of all, what's the baseball recommendation? Okay, so Farhan, you know, has a is a fantastic baseball mind and has a great group around him. Scott Harris, our GM, is number two. Uh, obviously, Gabe Kapler and the coaches weigh in, but we also have a whole apparatus of advisors and, and scouts, etc. So what's the baseball recommendation? What's going to make the team better? What moves, whether trades, free agent signings, you know, what have you, drafts, but, you know, in baseball, draft takes a while to for the players to go through the minor league system and, and, and emerge. So, you know, through signings and through trades, what's the baseball view? And then, you know, I would get involved or the board would get involved if there's there seems to be, you know, some extra piece to it that could help that could help with the fans. But again, if you're gonna you it's all gotta it's all gotta push in the same direction. So, you know, it would be wonderful to have a a a, a, a person that could be a marketing celebrity, a star. <coughs> Excuse me, but but you don't want to do that at the exclusion of the performance. So you first you're looking at the baseball recommendation, and then you're putting your twist twist on it from there. Do you ever twist uh, Farhan's arm? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, but he he'll twist my arm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know there's a, a more of a timely question now. I believe the Major League Baseball trading deadline is a week from today, maybe next week, I believe. Um, wh- are you yeah. buyers in the market? Are you sellers? You're only two games out of the wild card <laughs> spot. So in terms of the mathematics, you're right in the race. But math doesn't always rule baseball. Yeah. So historically, we've, we've been uh, you know buyers. And I think that that's, that's kind of where that's the given – uh, the exception are some years where maybe we we stood pat, uh, but if you kind of look at you look at our trajectory, we've been able to acquire players at the middle of the season where we've actually been even in worse positions. You know, it feels bad. Our position doesn't feel great right now because we just came off the four game uh, uh, lost four, losing four in a row to the Dodgers. But the reality is, we're just two games out of the wild card, two games out of the playoff spot. So we're we're right there with you know a handful of teams, and we've been in worse spot than than where we are now in previous years, and we've we've been buyers. So that might give you a little indication of what what our behavior could be. And you now I go back to years where it's actually cost us you know some significant dollars, whether it was the signing of Cody Ross or for hundred pence. But we've been able to uh, make, you know make some difference making moves uh, at the at the break. So uh, my strong inclination is inclination and sense is that uh, we'll be looking to improve the team this year and beyond. Uh, you know, with with moves, and so that would put us more in the buyer category. Larry loves the Commonwealth Club. You see, he just kind of gave us a little tip there. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, how, how do you improve? Uh, not just the Giants. How, how do you improve baseball attendance? Because, as you know, younger kids now, guys and girls, uh, are, aren't necessarily gravitating to baseball like when we were kids. Games are more than three hours long, where 10 years ago they used to be less than three hours long. Um, home runs are up, but strikeouts are up. Base hits are down. It, it's not a 
many, it's not as fun as it used to be, at least, you know, in my personal opinion and a lot of people's of of the way it used to be. It's longer, slower, more methodical, and kids aren't gravitating. What do you guys talk about on the league level to how to get fans back? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Raj. And, and we, we talk about all the above, all, all that you mentioned. And I think that it's we, the, the natural, the sort of the raw materials are there, right? In the sense that uh, we've got young stars in this game. We've got great players and not just folks on Giants players, but, you know, Fernando Tatis in San Diego and Aaron Judge in New York. I mean, we've got some exciting young players. Let me jump in. Um, you, you are such a good marketing guy and such a good uh, uh, you, you, you carry the torch for baseball, but you mentioned Tatis. You mentioned Aaron Judge, Shohei Itani, Mike Trout, but when I look at NBA stars, NFL stars, I see them and hear them more often. Baseball stars seem to be kind of hidden, like, you know, for, I, I don't know the answer yeah. to why. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, you know, uh, dynamic we have in baseball because I think baseball is the most tribal sport. And when I say tribal, what do I mean? Most connected to your community. You are, if you grew up a Yankees fan, you're a passionate Yankees fan, Giants fan, Dodgers fan, Cubs fan. I'm not saying that doesn't exist in the NBA if there are Lakers or Bulls or Knicks, but it's a long season and so much is focused locally on your team and your play and the, the players on the team. That the, that the national overlay is just different, right? And so what happens is with, with the NBA players, um, and I think we can do a much better job, I'll get to that in a second, but with the NBA players and the NFL players, you know, the national sponsors are aggressively uh, marketing the players. Uh, you know, let's take the NFL, okay? So you have, you have a star in the NFL, and they have national deals, and they're out there, uh, and they're out there before, between a much more na- with a much more national audience. In baseball, if your team, let's say, doesn't go to the playoffs, you're just a lot less interested. If you're, say, a Chicago Cubs fan, and the team's knocked out, you don't have that that interest in you know in the Yank Dodgers World Series that you might have uh, in the Super Bowl if your team was knocked out. Now. I think baseball needs to do a much better job. We all have to collectively work on the marketing and the national marketing of our stars because you take a player like Shohei Otani. I mean, he is a generational star. Maybe there, there's perhaps been nobody that even compares to him in the history of the game. You know, maybe Babe Ruth is the closest for what he, what this Otani skills. Um, and, he, so we've got to find a way work, working with sponsors at the league level to just you know infuse uh, infuse you know the marketing you know put turn on the marketing for players like that. I think we're trying, but a lot of it is really you you go back to your own kind of tribal interests of you know Dodger fans in L.A., Angels fans in L.A., and so it's a it's it's a it's a more localized passion as opposed to national. And look in the, in football also. I mean, what, another way to do that is through fantasy and the fantasy football. And there's betting, whatever. But uh, that's with games once a week. That has been a dynamic that baseball hasn't been able to 
you know, to, to approach as much. I think there's other more root causes, Raj, that we've got to focus on that I think we're doing a much better job in the last few years. Um, one is, is getting the best athletes to play baseball and getting more opportunities for, especially in underserved communities for, for, for people to play baseball. So we're working on a academy, a Crocker Amazon field here in San Francisco. A number of teams have been able to open academies, uh, baseball academies in underserved areas. Uh, the draft was just a week ago. And I think it was very heartening that um, four of the top five draft picks in this year's draft were, uh, you know, from, from the uh, black community, African-American members of the African-American black community uh, uh, in the United States. And that is that, you know, we've had a much lower uh, number of percentage of black players in recent 10, 15 years than, you know, in the days of, uh, of, you know, the back in the uh, pre 2000 era. So we've got to, we've got to increase that. And some of that is also tied to, uh, college scholarships. Baseball programs don't offer the college scholarships number of college scholarships that uh, football and basketball does. And so that's an issue as well. A couple of quick hitting questions just on possible rule changes to make the game faster because just 10 years ago it was less than three hours. Now it's more than three hours. Uh, I believe in terms of just the player's strength, uh, what, 10 years ago, a decade ago, the average velocity from a pitcher in Major League Baseball was 93 miles per hour. That's three miles per hour more than it was a decade ago. So, I mean, the pitchers are getting faster, which makes it harder to hit, and therefore you're seeing all these strikeouts. Uh, Would you entertain, is the league entertaining, possibly moving the pitching mound back a bit to give hitters a better chance? So we're trying a bunch of things. and Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's interesting. So the, the good news is in baseball, and it's not really true in some of the other you know, conventional sports, is we have a laboratory called the Meyer Leagues. So we can test these ideas. And the question is, what, what problem are you trying to solve? Because we have some very, very shrewd, smart, um, adept individuals working at, at Major League Baseball, people like Theo Epstein, who love the game and want the game to be improved and, and, and balanced more uh, from the from the direction it's headed. Natch is you know we've, we've got a, a fair amount of you know of, uh, of situations of games that occur where there's just the three outcomes you know strikeout based on balls or you know or perhaps home runs because uh, players are swinging for home runs these days and you know and and so what do you do about that one. One uh, way to and so so if it's lack of offense, one clear way to adjust for that is to eliminate shifts. And there's you know mass so, so instead of having three on, to four, we do it instead of having three to four fielders on the right side or left side. Keep the traditional two on the left, two on the right. Correct. Right, two on the left, two on the right, and we have to confine them to the dirt, to the the grass dirt. That'll get more offense in the game. I'm not sure fans personally, I, I think that, and I think that's, that's something that will happen and probably should happen. But I, I don't know if fans, I think fans can still appreciate a one to nothing game. But the problem is there just aren't enough balls in play, right? Uh, for in today's game. So I think that's an issue. The other issue is just time of game and a pitch clock 
is something that you know has been advocated for a while and looks like it's coming here in the next year or two. We have to make a uh, make an agreement with the players' association on it, or or at least have a, a committee that includes players approve it. And I think a pitch clock, you know, will be will have a, a decent effect. I mean, we had a twenty minute improvement on average in minor league games to use the pitch clock. That's you can believe difference. that. So what happens so if I think, go past these yeah. 16 seconds? Do I get a buzz on my hat? Or what, how, do you, how, do you, how does that work? <laughs> get it on that ball. <laughs> you know, on that ball. And same thing with the hitter. Same thing with the hitter. You know, you, if the hitter doesn't get in the box, it's an automatic strike. I mean, I, we, we are in a, in a mode where I think the commissioner, uh, rightly so, has concluded we've got to take some action. Uh, you know, and and the, the game is great. I think we want to get the game back to because sometimes you talk about improvements, and then it feels like you're you know you're trashing the game, and that's not the case. I think it's the game we fell in love with, the game I fell in love with riding the bus with my dad, Nineteenth um, Avenue, the game that we you know we fell in love with. With uh, we were talking about before the uh, event started, we talked about George Will and how he waxes so poetically about baseball um that game you know is that game is still there but we have to do it in a contemporary way and we have to realize that young fans aren't like young fans of 20 30 40 50 years ago um they got a lot on the lot going right and they're they're doing a couple screens at a time and they're you know not just watching a game uh either live or on television but they're checking what the tweets are about the game or they're texting their friend about the game. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a form of engagement, but we have to go, go, you know, where those fans are and those young fans are engaging differently. They, you know, they, they, at the ballpark, we're going to, we're changing some things that at our bar, at our park. And you've seen a number of teams have created much more, you know, sort of social gathering areas. So, um, You'll obviously still have the seating areas of, you know, just the conventional seating areas, but, you know, like on a club level, and you've seen these, Raj, I mean, you have these large plazas where you can watch a game from a large expanse, and you maybe have 40, 50 people in, a, in an area, and you're watching a game from a deck, let's say, and it's a great experience. It's a great experience. You can bring up, you know, your office out, you can be get, bring a whole neighborhood out, and um, you're taking in the game, but you're also taking in the, the social experience. Will you be posting a dance on TikTok after this uh, week concludes? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to be posting the TikTok because nobody will watch my TikTok. But we oh, got some, oh, we'll we be got watching, Larry. Very, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll be watching. You'll be laughing. Um, no, we got that, and, and, and so, you know, baseball has a big presence on TikTok. What, what is encouraging is that a lot of the players – now are really um, using social media as a way to uh, to promote the brand of baseball, to promote their club, and to promote themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that's and we like that. I don't know if you watch some of the national telecasts, um, the Sunday night telecasts, um, heavy and the All Star Game had this heavy on miking players. Yeah, it is pretty interesting. And last night the Mets um, Mark Canna, or as he said pronounce it Kana last night. He said, pronounce my name Kana. And I want to be like, a, he said, I want to be like a Brazilian soccer star. I want to have just one name, Kana, <laughs> not, 
not Mark Canna. Uh, but he was Mike last night in the in the Mets Padres game. And it was great. I mean, he was talking about well, now that he's in New York, he was with the A's previously, you know, his go-to food places, you know, how he gets ready for a game. He's, he's out in the outfield for the base, for the people that wanted him to talk about baseball. He talked about, you know, how he, how he observes the card and the directions on the card of where to be positioned, but how the, you know, playing for the Mets, that they afford him the ability to adjust off of that if he sees a pitcher with certain tendencies or he sees, you know, there's, there's something going on that would suggest that. So, I mean, those sorts of insights, we did not see that when we were watching a game, you know, in the decades ago. It, it was remarkable. Uh, so, I, I watched some of that Padres Giants game or the, the Padres Mets game last night. Also the all-star game. If anyone in the audience haven't seen that when they mic'd up and they had literally interviews and mic- players mic'd up, it was great. And, and Mark Kana, a Bellarmine prep grad from uh, San Jose as well. So a yes. local guy. Uh, we got a bunch and, of questions. And a Cal and a, and a Berkeley guy. Yeah, right. Cal Berkeley, right? We got a bet. We got a bunch of questions yeah. uh, from the audience. Uh, great questions. Uh, here's one. Uh, how do you fill the void uh, left now that Buster Posey has retired? That's, that's a great question. On the field and off the field. It's a great we're, question. We're a great Bay Area citizen. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I mean, start, let's start with the off the field. Buster and Kristen did something that, um, uh, you know, it, it'd be hard to replicate from any player. And they, they leaned in and they picked a, a, a cause, uh, pediatric cancer, and they were all in for you know more than a decade in room funds and staging events and visiting hospitals. And Buster actually um, just went on the um, the Jimmy V Foundation board, uh, which is a which you know is a, a national uh, version of what he was doing here in San Francisco. So um, you know he. His heart was as big as his uh, is as big as his uh, athletic ability on the on the field. You know, one of the things we've we've seen is I think um, you know catching is an important position, but it's really hard to get such an offensive minded player at that position. And so Buster is like kind of a one, once in a generation person. So we're gonna have to get the offense from other positions. Um, because it's just very hard for a catcher with all the burdens um, that are and all the requirements of a catcher to call pitches and taking foul tips off their foot and off their hands to uh, to be a, a, an elite hitter. But Buster was, uh, so you know you have to spread around the, the offense in other areas. Perhaps I think. Um, you know, and, and look, and we have like Kirk Casale's done a tremendous job. Austin wins. Joey Bart is coming along. You know, we our plan for Joey was to you know maybe bring him back up a little later this then, but then we had some injuries. So uh, so it's it's you're not going to replace him pound for pound, but you're going to have to disperse some of the offense around the other other eight positions. I remember Buster was a rookie with the what came up with the San Jose Giants. They said, ah, I think you called us. Said, go out and do a story on this guy. He's a rookie. He's going to be the star. So we go out and find him at the San Jose Giants. Like, oh, he's not here. He's at his house, but you can go interview him there. So we go to his house. He's living in the guest house, the guest cottage of Kevin Franzen's parents in the Willow Glen district of San Jose. And we talked to his wife, Kristen. She's like, we're like, how, how do you like California? She goes, I've never been to a shopping mall. 
I mean, it was, it was remarkable. It was, it was so cute to see them at that level. And, and, and they, they have done great things for, for the Bay Area. Does he come back uh, to a certain capacity, I, well, by the way? And in what capacity to the Giants? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're working on it. He's going to, you'll see him Saturday. We're hiring Walt Clark's number. So he's going to be back for, at numerous Giants events. And we're actually working on a role for him. It's kind of, we're working on it. He's working on it. Uh, can't announce it yet, but a rule that could be extremely exciting, I think, to everyone. Um, but uh, and I think you know when you can understand. I think you want to take a little bit of a breather this year. We have the big day in in May, and, uh, and as I say, he'll be at the ballpark this Saturday. Uh, and um, look, he's he's not he's not uh, he he's not evaporating. Trust us, he's going to be around. You guys do take care of your players in that sense. Uh, we got a lot of questions, so we'll do some rapid fires here. Uh, we talk about growing the organization from draft picks. Is there uh, one prospect in the farm system, this is a question from one of our viewers, who you would say that's, quote, can't miss uh, label for your future with the Giants? Is there a prospect you can think of that way right now that you can share with us? Well, I, I, I don't want to sh- – I tell you, this is a tough time to share something like that. I mean, the answer <laughs> is I don't know about can't miss. <laughs> but the but the problem is if 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 we were to identify somebody that we feel really highly about right now, that could be grist for the mill for the for the teams that are asking for <laughs> you know prospects in a trade. Um, I would I would say this that in baseball, you know, it is different than the other sports in that it's 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 pretty hard to do a camp miss label on a on a guy that's in the minor leagues because there's just so much development still left. Whereas you get a guy who's a, you know, a, a, a all-star at college, you know, uh, all-American in college basketball or football player, it's a, it's, you know, they can come in and make an impact immediately. For us, it's in baseball, it's, you know, a thousand at bats in the minor leagues or a couple hundred, several hundred innings pitched for a pitcher before you really know. Excellent. Um, here's one from the audience. You speak about community and tribes. I was wondering how you help foster the small Jewish community in San Francisco. In my view, it is almost non-existent. P.S. Can my wife and I have you over for dinner on Friday? <laughs> <laughs> Shabbat Shalom, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, I don't think the San Francisco Jewish community is, is that small. Um, you know, it's a, and we, we think of it as regional uh, Jewish community. I think one of the things we do, and it's not just the Jewish community, but all the, you know, all the, the heritage nights we do, whether it's, um, we never forget, we've had tremendous uh, nights at the ballpark with Filipino uh, American Heritage Night and Asian American Heritage Nights. Remember Manny Pacquiao, actually. Manny Pacquiao and uh, Tim Lincecum. Um, probably one of my favorites highlight of Filipino Heritage Night. So one of the things that I, I'm really proud of with our organization and what I feel is you know incredibly important if you have a sports franchise is the is the um, inclusivity uh, that everybody can feel part of being at the ballpark and and um, you know we we need to do even a better job of it as an industry and and the Giants um, you know sort of throwing out the, the welcome mat to everyone. Uh, we've been very much involved in LGBTQ uh, activities going back uh, a lot of years. And um, as you know, uh, this was a big initiative with Peter McGowan was until there's a cure day that was uh, to create research, create funding and awareness around AIDS uh, back 
in the day, 93, 94, 95, um, when people didn't really understand what AIDS was and what it wasn't. And I'll never forget uh, Barry Bonds and Dusty Baker on the first Until They Secure Day in 1994, uh, taking the field with the, with the red ribbon uh, on, their, on their jersey and filming uh, public service announcements about AIDS. And so... You know, so I think it's all, all the. I happen to be Jewish, but it, it's it's also it's all the communities uh, coming together um, and being a, truly a town center for for everybody to feel included at the ballpark. Where was my invite to Indian American Night? I haven't gotten one yet. <laughs> Raj, my goodness, you, you that we I don't know. We will get that addressed immediately. I'm kidding. I'm How's kidding. your right arm? You might you have to be the first ball. You're one of the proud members of that community. <laughs> Proudest member. Um, if you throw out the first ball, we'll have the, the pitch clock on you, though. <laughs> uh, from the audience as well, I believe I met this gentleman earlier. He's a pitcher at uh, in, in college in the Bay Area here. Uh, from Sid, what is the most important characteristic that makes an MLB pitcher? Good question. I mean, I think, you know, clearly you have to have the velocity and clearly you have to, you know, have to be able to, uh, um, you know, have the command as well as the velocity. But I don't know. Over the years, I would say that uh, you know, one of the things I found that the, the the pitchers and and really position players too that do the best uh, are the ones that have the uh, keep their composure and have the the the, uh, the, the even. Keel. And so it's, you know, a lot of people say it's between years. And I think in baseball, maybe more than the other sports, because the season's so long and the opportunity to get, you know, to get down, because they, you know, we talk about it being a game of failure and, you know, three successes out of every 10 at bats and, and you're doing really well as a hitter. I mean, I think as a pitcher, you know, I, I think of you, you, you get squeezed by umpires. You have to really be able to keep your composure, and uh, as a as a starting pitcher, you're once every five games. So you know you got to be able to have a good routine. So the makeup is good. The other thing that I think, and and this was something that our scouts, I remember going back to days of Dick Tidrow, the late Dick Tidrow, who was a you know was an amazing scout of pitching and pitching doctor, um, is um, you used to talk about is. Uh, ease of delivery. So, you know, the more quote unquote violent delivery you have, you know, where you got a lot of moving parts and a lot going on, a lot easier to be susceptible uh, to injury. And, you know, injury for a pitcher is, you know, whether it's Tommy John or something, something related to arm, uh, an arm problem is, uh, you know, knocks you out for a long period typically. So, also, ease of motion. I'll never forget when Tidro saw Mass and Bumgarner. He had he talked about uh, how uh, Bum's you know his motion was just so easy. He just didn't sitting hurt uh, in his career. And there's some great pitching. We have an amazing uh, pitching guru called Brian Bannister. And Brian Bannister, uh, who is actually from the Bay Area originally, who's done amazing things with our pitching. And you look at guys like Logan Webb and people that we've been able to develop. Um, you know, uh, sure. Danny's done an amazing job. A couple more minutes. We'll wrap it up here. Um, you, you, you lead this organization, but is there a player in the last 
10, 20 years that, that stands out to you that you've learned from just in casual conversations in the clubhouse or at the batting cage or in the offseason? And, and what did you learn? What have you learned from your players? That's a really good question. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Buster, I mean, I think Buster's got to be a, a right at the top of the list for reasons we just we talked about previously. Um, but, I mean, there have been some players that uh, maybe not some of the big-name players and some of the big-name players that, that I, I've learned from. Um, I think about um, somebody like Jeremy Affel, who was, uh, you know, was really good and, got it and was on the you know, three rings, but, um, but I learned from him uh, service and empathy. Uh, he was an incredible, has his, actually his uh, big uh, event is Sunday night, Generations Alive, um, which is, uh, supports um, anti-human trafficking, uh, human trafficking initiatives, fighting human trafficking. Um, but he was all about service. And he is, um, you know, he had just, I've never seen anybody better in the community than, than, than Jeremy. Um, you know, this might surprise some people, but I learned, uh, about focus from uh, Barry Bonds. Yeah. Barry would, before a game, sit in his locker and project. Um, you know, he, he pictured the, the ball coming up as, at a, the size of a grapefruit. And, uh, and what he was going to do, he, 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 he had a number of techniques that were, um, that were, that were super interesting and very focused. Um, those are a couple of guys. I, you know, there were, there were some really, there's some, some guys that, you know, really love the game that I, I always gravitated to. Um, and, you know, even though we obviously didn't play while I was working at the, the club, uh, I'll never, you know, forget the interactions with Will Hayes. Um, maybe just, you know, he'd be, he'd be the one that would transcend everybody because, um, he loved the game so much. He loves the game so much. And he loves being around players so much that, look, if we're all pick a calling. You're, you've gone to the top in the television news business, Raj. People do, you know, in whatever their calling is, I just wish that you know, everybody loved what they did as much as Willie loved um, the game and after the game, you know, as a, as a retired player and working for the Giants, uh, how he loves working with with uh, with players and showing up in spring training every year and and hanging out and uh, and offering his tips. Really nice. Last couple minutes here. Um, favorite funny story behind the scenes that you rarely share or you've never shared before with you and one of the players or just anything uh, with the Giants. Something wacky, something funny. Okay, well, this was, um, <laughs> I, 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 and I, I think I have permission to tell this better. It's not, I'm, well, I like there, there could be a lot of apology because <laughs> I'll, I'll see him Saturday. So um, in 2010, when we won the championship, um, we, we decided to, you know, we talked about this actually a little earlier, how these rings, these are huge rings and they're very gaudy and ostentatious and, and everything, but you know, we know to some extent that's what the players want. So, but we designed one that was in 2010 that was we felt was 
was appropriate, but not way over the top. And the players liked it. The players received them well, or, or so we thought. And they did receive them well. And it was, it was great. There, it, lots of pride. So in 2012, uh, after game four in Detroit, we swept, swept the World Series, um, Butler comes up to me in the locker room. I mean, literally like 10 minutes after the last out. Champagne's pouring and everybody's hugging and dripping and everybody. And Buster says, you got to you gotta do me a favor. I got one favor to ask. And it's basically, you know, short of writing a check for a billion dollars, the answer is going to be yes. This guy just came back from his incredible injury in 2011. He, he was in 2012, he was actually the uh, world, he was the MVP and won the batting title, had this amazing year. Um, sure. What's, what's the favor? When you guys are designing the ring, the championship ring this year, think gaudy. <laughs> That is excellent. So that was a reaction. 2010 being a little understated. And I got to tell you, 2012 was anything but understated. <laughs> the ring. Okay, Larry, thanks for your time. Final question here for everyone here and in the attendance and watching online. Uh, just your message to Giants fans, because it's been a challenging season. And granted, we're just halfway through. Uh, but, but but give us something that's that's not candy-coated, but that's something that's serious. But But, but what do we have to look forward to? I think that I think what what the DNA of the Giants, you know, from last year, frankly, uh, is is still there, and we've got we're going to work hard at the trade deadline to see to add, if we can add to the team. There's no guarantees there, but I, I think what if, if you if you we can get our guys back, and Brandon Crawford's supposed to come back in a couple of days. You know, Brandon Bell is feeling better. Longoria, it's got another week now. He went on the. But if we get everybody back and we're able to, that the the DNA that we had last year that got us to 107 wins uh, is still on the club because it's basically the same club. Few changes here and there. Um, in some ways, we've improved the club. We think with Rondon being a fantastic elite pitcher. So uh, hang in there with us. Uh, we're gonna we've we've got that DNA. We got that championship DNA. Uh, believe a lot in Gabe Kapler and the way he's approaching um, the, how he's going about it with his young coaching staff. That's, that's very engaged. So, uh, so just to hang in there with us, remember um, as we've shown in the past in baseball, especially if you can get into the playoffs, you never know what'll happen. Larry bear. Thank you for your time tonight. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, thanks so much, Raj. Thank you everyone. See you at the ballpark. Have a good night. Thanks to Larry Bear, the president and CEO of the Giants. And thank you to all of you for watching online, being here in, uh, at the Commonwealth Club here in San Francisco. It's great to see everyone in person and online. For more information about the programs we run, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Good night. <laughs> You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. 
Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.